Hello, welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on, and speak to some of the people behind the headlines. This week, we're going to be hearing about Turkish speedy grocery scale-up Getir's latest troubles, as well as news from French investment firm Eurasio, which has lost four investors as they leave to start their own fund, days after closing a second 400 million euro smart city fund. We'll also hear about the bankruptcy of VC and Celeb's favorite bike, Van Moof. We're also going to talk to our reporter Miriam Partington about whether Aura Rings and executive coaches are really the answer to founder burnout. And before we get into all of that, we have a very exciting new speaker to announce for our Sifted Summit in October. None other than Stripe co-founder John Collison, who the information, the Silicon Valley tech publication, coincidentally did a big profile of this week, which looked into the bumpy times that the payments giant has been experiencing and revealed what John has been spending his money on, which includes a $15 million estate in Ireland, which is now home to 40 homeless horses that he adopted. So if you want to hear more about that, maybe we'll be uh, asking John about that on stage at the Sifted Summit. Get your tickets. You can find them at summit.sifted.eu. Up first, uh, we have some more news from struggling speedy grocery giant Getir. Last week, the British arm of the Turkish scale auctioned off bikes, helmets and fridges in an attempt to tame major cash flow issues. Amy, tell me about what happened and why. Yeah, so this was quite funny to watch. Um, an auction managed by the commercial property agent Sanderson Weatherall took place last Thursday morning. Some of our reporters were having a snoop to see what you could buy. We hear that you could pick up a Getir branded purple and yellow helmet for a mere £10. I'm a bit sad we didn't get one for the sifted office, but alas, I think the bidding had closed by the time we decided that might be a fun thing to do. People could also buy things like refrigeration units, scooters, and insulated bike boxes. I mean, if anyone is listening and bought one of these things, I'm really intrigued to know why, because they are very, very branded. Why this happened is that Getir is basically shutting down a bunch of its dark stores in London. These are those inner city warehouses where they stock the products and where the drivers come to pick up the things that people ordered. We think this might be down to the fact that Getir acquired its rival Gorillas at the end of last year, so that it probably has some locations where it's sort of doubling up. But it is also, you know, reported to have cash flow issues and so you know, selling off these things to generate a little bit more money is a useful thing to do. We also reported a few weeks ago that office staff from the HQ in London had actually been asked by a senior manager to kind of volunteer to go down to the stores and help clear them out, which I think is probably not what those people who are whatever in marketing or developers were expecting to be asked to do when they took their jobs at Getir. The company has been struggling for a while and they've been trying a number of strategies to fill this hole or to generate more cash for their business. What else have we seen Getir try recently? Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds a bit desperate, but people from HQ were also asked to go knocking on doors in four London neighbourhoods, um, including Peckham and Ballon, to basically chat to residents and be like hello you know would you like a discount would you like to order some stuff from gorillas the the company that getir had bought which doesn't sound like a company that's on the up does it yeah i actually use getir 
a fair amount, I would say. And this week when I tried, I got back from being away over the weekend. And if I come back from being away, usually that's a great way to kind of get a week's worth of groceries. Um, but when I went on the app, a lot of stuff was out of stock. So I didn't end up ordering anything. But I guess this is kind of also indicative of what's happening in the wider speedy grocery sector as a whole, right, Amy? Yeah, so as we've spoken about on the pod many, many times, this was such a COVID boom industry. And now lots of these businesses are struggling. You know, there's a cost of living crunch, so people are probably less willing to spend money on slightly priced up groceries to have them delivered very speedily to their door. Getir is reportedly trying to raise 500 million from the sovereign wealth fund Mubadala, which, you know, it's raised from before. Um, and what we're kind of hearing on the grapevine is that it's pretty much that investment firm needs to keep bankrolling Getir or it's going to be in a really tricky place. Who exactly is left from the speedy grocery times in Europe? There really aren't very many. It's sort of Get It and Flink, the Berlin-based company that are the main ones left. Flink, we at Sifted don't know heaps and heaps about. They've never really been very keen to talk to the media, but they're the sort of two big ones that have presences in multiple markets that are left now. There's also one called Zap, but that's really just in the UK now. You know, from having dozens of these businesses in 2020, now really most of them have gone. So in other interesting news this week, French investment firm Eurasio, which is one of those big beasts, it has loads and loads of funds, it's got a really big team, it invests across all different stages and um, also has some funds that are specific for certain sectors, like its Smart City Fund, which it raised just a few weeks ago. Eurasio has had a bit of drama this week. Four of the investors from its growth equity team have quit and they're leaving to start their own fund, Sifted Sources tell us. I don't know, what else do we know? Late last week, Eurasio announced that it had appointed Hala Fadel as managing partner in charge of Eurasio Growth. And she was coming in to replace the managing director who had left two weeks earlier, Jan de Ruskek. Then multiple sources confirmed to us on Monday that several other members of that team had handed in their resignations. One woman in London, one woman in Berlin, and a man in Paris. It's a pretty big shift for the team because Jan de Ruskek had launched the growth fund actually in 2014. So, you know, he's been there for nearly a decade. And most of that team had been with him there for that time. Um, and they had all raised Eurasio's third and latest growth fund in 2021 of 1.6 billion euros. Yeah, and they've also invested in some of Europe's best known growth stage companies like Backmarket, the secondhand technology marketplace Glovo, the grocery or delivery platform Doctolib, the really big French health tech company Tink, the Swedish fintech, you know, some some really big significant businesses and the fact that they're all just heading off together and going to start something new. It reminded me of, you know, that scene in Mad Men where they go into the office late at night and they pack up all their stuff and they go off to start a rival firm. I feel like this is VC's equivalent, which is quite fun. But I guess this is, you know, part of wider changes at the firm at Eurasio as well. Um, five months ago, the CEO of the whole firm, um, Virginie Morgan, was pushed out by shareholders who were not happy about the company's share price. So Eurasio is one of the rare VC firms in Europe, like Molten Ventures in the UK, which is actually publicly listed. 
And so they were not happy about the share price and about the financial performance of the firm and pushed her out. Um, and so people have kind of said that this change in the growth investing side of things as well is just kind of a ripple effect of this wider change in leadership. Yeah, um, I've spoken to a few people who work at the firm and you know the impression I've got is that that has left a bad taste in quite a lot of people's mouths and could be a reason why people are deciding to leave the company. But of course, we put all this stuff to us spokesperson for Eurasio to ask them the firm's view on this. And they said that these departures are personal decisions and that they didn't wish to comment on them, but that the continuity of the growth team would be ensured thanks to the great expertise of Hala Fadel, who has 27 years of experience. And talking about a little bit more turmoil, last week we wrote about Dutch e-bike company Van Move, which was declared bankrupt in the Netherlands last week. This was obviously like the hype bike for the past couple of years. Celebrities rode it and were photographed with this bike. Um, VCs loved it. It was absolutely beautiful. I remember walking into a park one time where there was someone with a Van Move bike and there were literally 20 people gathered on the bike like, oh, this is the most beautiful bike I've ever seen. So it certainly made a splash. What actually happened? What caused the downfall of the world's most beautiful e-bike, Amy? Yeah, so... Van Moof has raised quite a lot of money. It's raised close to $200 million over time from some pretty well-known investors like Borderton and Felix Capital. But, you know, it's had troubles for a while. So in 2021, its sales figures showed that the bikes actually cost more to produce and repair than they were sold for. Um, that You know, the kind of cost of repairs and replacements was getting really high and that there were supply chain issues slowing down the deliveries. These bikes are not cheap. They cost about $4,000. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about this story is that because they're e-bikes and they have all these features like, you know, you being able to unlock them with your phone, if the kind of VanMove servers go down, if the app isn't functioning anymore, the bikes kind of don't work or might not work as well. It's not like a bit of analog hardware where it doesn't matter if, you know, the company that produced it goes under. And also customers kind of need a van move to help them do the repairs you can't kind of go to any old bike shop and get stuff fixed so there's all these people with really quite expensive vehicles suddenly wondering whether they'll actually be able to use them anymore and yeah and people who own these bikes are they love these bikes. We talked to a lot of people who were owners of VanMove bikes and the outpouring of like we want to save these bikes, we want to use these bikes forever was really overwhelming. And it was also very funny that lots of the customers resorted to messaging the Amsterdam police force to ask them if there was anything they could do. Uh, and the police force put out a statement basically saying, this is not theft, please leave us alone. We have more serious things to do. I've also been super impressed with the fact that competitors have jumped on this so quickly. Yeah, so FanMu's probably its closest competitor is um, a Belgian company called Cowboy. And over the weekend when the sort of news of the bankruptcy came out, it built an app called Bikey, which it says will enable VanMoof users to continue to use their bikes if VanMoof servers are switched off. Uh, there's also a Hungarian e-bike company called Blurby Bike, which offered VanMoof customers a trade-in deal. So you could kind of part exchange your VanMoof bike and get money off a Blurby bike. And one other company, a Germany bike subscription company called Dance, was offering VanMoof users a discount on its service. So the messaging was very much like, we're so, so sorry for your troubles, but here, spend money and use our product instead. 
So what's next for Van Moof? So we're not entirely sure. Van Moof also has operations in some other places like Germany, France, the UK, the US and Taiwan. And its business there has not been declared bankrupt, but you know, is HQ'd in the Netherlands and it is the Netherlands entity that's gone bankrupt. You know, the supply chain issues that have been affecting it affect it all over. So we're kind of watching this space. If you know anything more, please get in touch because we want to continue reporting this story. Yeah, Van Moof has said that the company is setting up a sale process for the assets and activities of Van Moof in the Netherlands. And so we might see who buys Van Moof. Some people on the internet were like, Elon should buy it. But, you know, we'll see. Elon's got other concerns. So in our interview this week, we're joined by a reporter, Miriam Partington, who has been diving even further into founder wellness Hi, Miriam. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks very much for having me. So this week, you wrote an article that was prompted by VC firm Balderton and its announcement about launching a founder wellness program. What does this program entail and what does it have to do with Aura Rings? Yeah, so the health and wellness program is essentially a six-month offering, and it includes things like blood work, fitness tracking, nutrition, sleep, mental health evaluation, and that's all then put into a personalized plan for the founder. So it's initially six months, but then they say they have ongoing support after that. The Oura Ring thing is actually to do with the fact that all the founders on this program get kitted out with loads of different kinds of wearables. So you've got the Oura Rings to track sleep. You've got glucose tests to assess blood sugar levels, um, a chest strap, essentially, to measure heartbeat and that kind of thing. So that's the kind of health and wellness side of the program. And then you've got executive coaches and then also CEO peer-to-peer groups. So why, I mean, I know being a founder is a super stressful job, but is this a VC's responsibility to provide this stuff for founders? Well, I think some people would say yes and others would say no. I think some people felt like it was a bit of a step too far and that a boundary should be maintained between the founder and the VC, or perhaps you could say a power dynamic should be maintained between the founder and the VC. Whereas other people think it is the VC's responsibility to say, hey, we know that these founders are kind of burning the candle at both ends. What can we do to alleviate aspects of their stress? So I think it's a mixture. And what did you kind of hear from founders about programs like this? How did founders react to this stuff? I think a lot of founders felt that analyzing health and performance data is just too much effort, but is also just a bit of a drop in the ocean compared to all of the myriad problems that they're dealing with. So there was one founder that we quoted in the piece who said that the wellness program doesn't alleviate founders from the things that really cause them stress, which is stuff like running out of money, having to fundraise, and also being able to afford things like childcare, which we all know are really expensive. And how much do you think this has to do with maybe VC as a whole and industry as a whole, right? In order to to create the financial returns necessary to make a successful VC firm, you need to have these extreme outlier outcomes, right? Which means that there's going to be a lot of stress on founders. So how much of this is just down to like VC as an industry? A few people I spoke to described exactly what you just said as the VC model being quite extractive. So, you know, some VCs drive founders for high performance in order to get high returns for themselves and LPs, which is disastrous for well-being. 
But there are a few VCs that are thinking about how to antidote this at the level in which capital flows. So for example, VCs like Kindred give 20% of its carry, so its investment profits, to its founders, which means that essentially the VC partners and then also the other founders in the portfolio are financially incentivized to help struggling founders. So that's kind of one intervention that people have been talking about. And then you do have VCs like Masawa in Berlin, that is a mental health focused fund. And they actually ask founders during the due diligence process, like what the things are that could be stressful in their founder journey and what could prevent them from running the business. And then they go in during the due diligence process and say, you know, how can we actually manage this? Like, how can we manage the conflicts that inevitably arise between co-founders? How can we help you build communication strategies with your employees, et cetera, et cetera? So I think there's a lot of people that do recognize that VC is quite a tough industry on all sides and doesn't prioritize well-being but there are glimmers of solutions being put forward totally and why do you think that people are starting to take note about this you know as you said there's like those glimmers some funds are doing stuff why now I think number one, mental health has become a lot more on the agenda. And you have kind of famous examples of people like Tom Blomfield from Monzo coming out and saying, I had stepped down from my company because I was just completely ruined physically and mentally. But also, I think VCs are probably thinking a lot about the performance of their portfolios. And one of the things that is causing companies to fail is mental health. So I think you know, in an economic climate that is not very favorable right now, VCs are probably just thinking a lot more about this. Like, how can we prevent the downside of our portfolio? And one of the things is founder wellbeing. Yeah, completely. Well, I hope one day maybe you'll be able to try this program, Miriam. I think it would be (laughs) very cool. I've always been very anti these Ura rings. I think it's a recipe for becoming a bit too obsessed. So I've always, I mean, always it's, stopped, uh, stayed well clear. It's totally true. It's like some people, I think if you have more data about yourself, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like not doing well. And it actually is counterproductive, but I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Miriam. Thanks very much. That's all we have time for. If you would like to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu. You can find all the articles we've mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. And let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or email hello at sifted.eu and join us next week. Bye.